0: We'll hear argument next in case 2351, Bissonnette versus LePage Bakeries. Ms. Bennett?
1: Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, less than two years ago in Southwest versus Saxon, this Court carefully examined the text and history of the Federal Arbitration Act's worker exemption, and it held that the exemption applies to, quote, any class of workers directly involved in transporting goods across State or international borders. Flowers now asks this Court to add an additional unwritten requirement, that the worker's employer must sell transportation. According to Flowers, if the thousands of truck drivers who work full-time hauling its goods were only employed by a trucking company that Flowers had hired to do so, then they'd be exempt transportation workers. But because Flowers essentially created its own in-house trucking company— It says that those same truck drivers are no longer transportation workers. That distinction has no basis in the text of the statute. Flowers' only attempt at a textual argument is its invocation of a Houston generis, But that argument fails from the start, because Flowers can't identify a single example of the word semen ever being defined based on whether a worker's employer sold transportation. In fact, if Flowers' drivers were on boats rather than trucks, under Flowers' own definition of seamen, they would be seamen. In the words of Saxon, that sinks the company's a Generous argument. Unable to rely on the text, Flowers pivots to administrability. But even if this court could rewrite statutes to make them easier to apply, Flowers' rule is anything but workable. Flowers can't even explain how it would apply in this very case. This Court should reject Flowers' attempt to add to the FAA an employer-based industry requirement that is both textual and unworkable. I welcome this Court's questions.
2: Uh, if this case is decided in your favor, would it affect the uh, uh, a separate question of whether or not this, these drivers are engaged in uh, intrastate on deliveries.
1: No, I don't think it would. The only question, you know, as this case comes to the court, built into the question presented is the assumption that the workers are members of a class of workers engaged in interstate commerce. It wouldn't affect that at all. The only question here is, assuming that to be true, is there an additional requirement that the individual plaintiffs be employed by a company that's in the transportation industry?
2: So why would um, the uh, inquiry into transportation industry be any more complicated than the inquiry into transportation workers
1: uh, so by by transportation workers, I take it you mean whether someone is directly involved yeah. so so I think there are I think there are certainly going to be edge cases about whether some a class of workers is directly involved in transporting goods across state or international borders. I, we can see that, but what flowers is asking is that we adopt an additional requirement on top of that that wouldn 't obviate that inquiry so take for example amazon so It has trucks traveling across the highway. It has planes in the air. Maybe there's a difficult question about whether those, you know, say truckers are um, directly involved in transporting goods across borders, but what Flower says is in addition to figuring out that question, we also have to figure out whether Amazon sells transportation. So, you know, how do we know? Do we need discovery into whether it sells transportation? Does it matter who it sells it to? Does it just have to sell it to its customers? Does it have to sell it to other companies? Does it matter how much transportation? transportation it sells? Does it matter what percentage of its prices and revenues? All of these are going to be difficult questions that are then layered on top of the question you raised, which is already in the text of the statute. And so and in an Amazon's case, for example, it doesn't get us out of the question you raised. It just adds an additional one on In your top.
3: opening, you uh, emphasized the text quite a bit. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, but in Houston Generous cases, <clears throat> by definition, we're not following the literal text of the residual clause. Instead, we're looking at the listed items and trying to discern what connects those listed items, what feature of those listed items is common. Uh, And as as the Scalia-Garner treatise says, that can be somewhat indeterminate. Difficult position for judges, but we have to try to figure it out. So semen uh, and railroad employees in 1925, one thing that it seems was going on, but I want to get your reaction to, is Congress took them out of this arbitration regime. All workers, all contracts of employment are subject to arbitration. Takes them out, but takes them out seemingly, you have to look at the legal context, I would think, because they had a separate arbitration regime that already existed. In other words, at least as I read the record, and it is murky in parts, I'll grant you, As of 1925, Congress didn't want anyone to be outside of arbitration. They wanted Section 2 for most workers and then not for seamen and railroad employees because there was a separate arbitration regime. Why, when we look at the common legal context that connects those terms, isn't that the correct way to look at it. Why is that wrong?
1: There are two answers to that. One is we know that Congress wasn't exempting just workers who had alternative dispute resolution regimes because it added the residual clause, and that residual clause would have covered no workers at all at the time.
3: At the time, but what Congress was doing, arguably — this is the argument — was contemplating there would be future industries — that would fit in, and in 1936, the airline industry comes in, and those employees are funneled into the same kind of separate – or the railway arbitration regime. So that Congress was accommodating the future.
1: Sure so the, the second historical answer to that is even if this court were going to try to discern some purpose of the exemption and, and instead of uh, focusing specifically on the text, which is difficult a hundred years later, you know if you look at seamen, um, I think one of the assumptions under that underlying that question is seamen had um, were going to arbitration that there was a mandatory arbitration scheme that covered seamen, and that 's actually just, just not correct. so the shipping Commissioners Act, which is the statute that provided um, for shipping commissioner arbitration for seamen. Um, um, two things about that. It wasn't limited to employers who sold transportation. So it was, uh, it had geographic limitations. It was about seamen who were traveling um, coast-to-coast, and some coastwise seamen, like the people on lumber boats who would have been employed in lumber companies. So even if you think that's the purpose of the exemption is to accommodate these alternative dispute resolution schemes, adding an employer-based industry requirement would actually conflict with that purpose. But I also want to take a step back and talk about what the dispute resolution scheme was governing seamen at the time. And this Court has discussed that in its U.S. bulk carriers case. And what the Court said is, you know, from the beginning, of time, essentially, seamen have been wards of the court. They've been subject to the court's protection with a right to bring cases in court. And since 1790, Congress had enshrined that right in statutes. And what the Shipping Commissioners Act did is it said if certain seamen after a dispute arises, if they agree with the master of their boat in writing to go to the, to the shipping commissioner, then they can do so. And what this Court held is that imposing a pre-dispute mandatory arbitration scheme would conflict with this age-old right to go to court. So you
3: think Congress in 1925 wanted seamen to be able to go straight to court?
1: I think that's exactly right, and I think that's what, what — the
3: sh- Is there anything to support that?
1: Uh, sure. So so there are a few things. Um, one is it's what this Court said in U.S. bulk carriers. If you look at the title of the U.S. Code, which is Title 46, enacted at the, in 1925, the same year that the Federal Arbitration Act was enacted, what you'll see is um, references, all of the a lot of the rights, um, the references say you can go to court. And if you look at the Shipping Commissioner's Act itself, it only applies if after the dispute has arisen, the parties to the dispute agree in writing to Go to arbitration. In other words, it only applies post-disputes, quite different than what the Federal Arbitration Act would require. Um, and, and this court explained all of this in, in the U.S. Bulk Carriers case. And in that case, it was looking at um, grievance arbitration, but the principles apply. And, and the principles are: uh, this uh, a mandatory pre-dispute arbitration statute would have would have interrupted all of this.
4: I, can I, I'm sorry. You finish. Just go ahead. Sorry. Um, Is there any continuing reason, and this is just my ignorance, so I'm just curious. We're talking about why in 1925, what the regulatory regime was, and whether Congress wanted to funnel some of these transportation workers into alternative dispute um, resolution mechanisms. Is this now just an anachronism, or is there any continuing reason for transportation workers to be exempt?
1: Uh, so it's, I'll, I'll be quite honest with you, which is it's not clear entirely what the purpose was in 1925. It's not clear now. You know, I think if you if you look at the history, what was happening is that there were you know strike after strike in the transportation uh, among transportation workers and and, in, and among maritime workers, and specifically the strikes were were the core of those strikers were lumber boats, people who were not employed by employers in the transportation industry, uh, and and to the extent that what Congress was doing is saying these. People people are really important to our economy, and every time they strike, they are uh, interrupting commerce. You know, the the seamen strike amongst the lumber boats in 1923 interrupted the whole
4: building boom on the West Coast. But but that's all from the past, right? So So my question is just like, yeah, now. Right. So
1: putting that in that context, you know, one thing that— courts do and that group-based arbitration does is it makes transparent issues that are coming up amongst transportation workers and amongst these companies, and it gives Congress uh, and the executive branch, which was often involved in these disputes in the past, insight into, into how these disputes are arising and maybe the potential for heading them off. And so I do think there's a modern reason, you know, to the extent we think that was the reason in 1925, it's no different now um, What it in that people going to court and people going to sort of labor-based grievance, group-based arbitration like in the railroad statutes, would would flag these kinds of disputes perhaps before they end up, you know, in nationwide strikes that are going to interrupt commerce. Anyway.
5: The Second Circuit did not uh, rely on the district court's reasoning. And Basically. so it's not before us, and, and but this is more a curiosity on my part. Um, the district court, I understood, said they're not transportation workers because they do more <laughs> that's office-based, they're, they're – um, they're not a traditional transportation worker. How do you deal with that? If, if someone's job is, you know, at the end of the day, um, they're making all this product, but they deliver it from here to somewhere else, um, that's enough for you?
1: Uh, so, so I think there's a factual answer to that question and a legal answer, and I'll take the legal question first. Okay. which is, Which is, I think what you're raising is the question of some workers have different tasks that they do, and how do, how do we deal with that question? And the, the first uh, stab I would take at that is to look at this Court's decision in Saxon, actually. You know, Ms. Saxon in Saxon spent three days a week, roughly, loading and unloading cargo, and two days a week supervising other people. And what this Court said is Three days a week is enough. We don't need to look at whether the supervision counts. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so, and so there may be, I think, tough questions, uh, in very few cases, actually, where people, uh, are, are having multiple jobs. I'll note that these aren't, I, we haven't seen them in the lower courts. It doesn't come up often. Uh, and there are, and the way I would deal with answering them, you know, if it's, say, less than Saxon, but more than never, uh, is, is to look, you know, I would do two things. One is I would look in 1925 and see, for example, how much, you know, of the time did someone have to spend doing the kinds of work that somebody is doing to be a seaman and a railroad employee? I'd also note that this comes up in other statutory regimes, and I might look at those cases. So, for example, there's a whole body of law around the Jones Act, which is the case that involves the statute governing um, when seamen are injured and when they can bring claims about what percentage of the time the person has to be connected to the vessel in order for them to be a seaman. And so I might look at that body of law. There's a body of law under the Motor Carriers Act about how much uh, a company needs to be engaged in commerce to be subject to that act. So it's not an unusual question, and courts have tools to answer that question. It's also not a question that comes up much. Can I ask you
3: about Saxon um, itself and um, also comments in your brief that it would make no sense to adopt the opposing side's view? Because in Saxon, at oral argument, uh, it was repeatedly stated uh, to us if we're talking about a company that is shipping its own goods those people likely wouldn't have been railroad railroad employees or seamen at the time Um, not just Amazon department stores those people are likely not exempt and here's why there was a distinction that was made between railroads that ship things for the public and I think that's how we normally understood understand seamen and railroad employees and say a coal company's internal railroads and there's another there's more uh we have seamen and railroad employees the two classes of workers that had pre-existing dispute resolution statutes at the time and were commonly understood categories as a class the seamen are the people who do the work of the shipping industry as a class railroad employees are people who do the work of the railroad industry now i bring that up not to bind anyone uh i bring that up just because that was the common sense understanding of counsel of uh, Saxon, uh, and it, so it seems odd that you would read the Saxon opinion to have blown through those limits that were being stressed by counsel for Saxon about the implications of the position, number one, and it seems odd also to say uh, the other side's position just makes no sense when given what was said at the oral argument in Saxon. So just want to give you opportunity to respond to that.
1: Sure. And a, few, a few responses to that. One is you know, we don't read Saxon to decide the question presented here. I, I
3: certainly that. didn't think that based on what happened at oral argument.
1: Sure. And I, I think I think it leaves the question presented open, although I will say I think Flower's argument is inconsistent with the reasoning of Saxon, which is we look at what these words meant in 1925, and we also are looking for a commonality between seamen and railroad employees. And if there isn't a, that commonality, we're not going to add an additional requirement. Now, I think you asked about some answers to the hypotheticals in, in mm-hmm. Saxon. you know, And I'll note that this question wasn't presented either way in Saxon. Um, and, and there were some hypotheticals, I do think, that touched on this question. Uh, but the — you know, and I apologize if, if the answer wasn't as clear as it should have been. The grab Well, I thought the answer was
3: very clear, actually. <laughs> well, so, it, was, so, it was reassuring <laughs> — I think the word narrow was used — reassuring that the holding in favor of Saxon would be narrow and would not extend to industries other than transportation industry, which — that may be incorrect, but to call it — like, that makes no sense is a little much, for me at least.
1: Sure. And I think the, the grave amount, you know, the, there were specific predictions maybe, but the grave on that answer is to know whether the F- Federal Arbitration Act exempts a particular class of workers, we'd have to do is go back and look in 1925 and see what these words meant. And we've now, you know, because it wasn't the question presented in Saxon, that, that research hadn't been done, we've now done that. Um, and I think it's very clear that in 1925, um, the word seamen did not mean somebody who was employed by a company that sold transportation. And I, I'd like to... To turn to that briefly, if if I may. Um, you know, every source we have, when you go back and take a look, you've, you've dictionaries, case law, books, statu, other statutes, literally any piece of evidence we have confirms that the word semen included anyone who worked aboard a vessel in furtherance of its purpose. It had nothing to do with whether an employer sold transportation or in the Second Circuit's word had a particular price or revenue structure. And I'll note that this court has already canvassed this history at least twice, you know, first in Willander and then again in Saxon. And both times it came to the same conclusion, which is that seaman, seamen rather, is a longstanding, well-defined term that in 1925 plainly meant everybody who worked aboard a vessel. Now, to its I actually don't take flowers to dispute this ordinary meaning of seamen. Maybe they'll get up and tell me I'm wrong about how I read their brief. But but what I take them to say is, you know, whatever the ordinary meaning is, for purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act, the court should give the word a different definition, and that different definition should be something like workers aboard a ship in a carrying trade, uh, carrying goods for trade and commerce. And, and there are two problems, though, with this request. The first is not only is this not the ordinary meaning of seamen in 1925, it's not any meaning ever of seamen in 1925 or since then. What that definition comes from is a definition that a single district court gave to the term merchant vessel. And the term merchant vessel is nowhere in the Federal Arbitration Act. So Flowers has to demonstrate a commonality between seamen and railroad employees, not between railroad employees and merchant vessels. So that's the first problem. It's just not in the statute. The second problem, though, is that even if this Court were willing to accept this definition of words that aren't even in the statute as the definition of seamen for purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act and define it in accordance with what Flowers says we should define it, Flowers' drivers meet its own definition. There's no question that Flowers' truck drivers are engaged in transporting goods for commerce just like the people on lumber boats in 1925, just like the people on the barges carrying railroad tie manufacturer's goods in this Court's decision in air. And so even if we were to accept every single one of Flowers' arguments on seamen, they still haven't shown that this employer-based industry requirement has anything to do with the words of the statute.
5: And, And just to understand, what are the categories of seamen who do not work in the shipping industry?
1: There's a vast number of them, uh, and they're not, you know, one thing that's difficult is they're not, um, well, so I actually, I want to take a step back and, and, and talk about the word industry very briefly, which is that when you say in the shipping industry, we can mean two different things. One is we can mean the workers who are in the industry, as in these are people who do shipping work. They do the work of the boat. Or you can mean sort of an employer-based requirement, which is they work for a company that sells transportation on Flowers' version. And, and I think the intuition that seamen and railroad employees are definitely in the transportation industry is an intuition on the first question about industry.
5: So assuming what I meant was the sure. second? Sure. So, so who are the seamen who are not working for shippers?
1: There's a a bunch of them. So uh, there are a bunch of manufacturers, for example, who employed seamen. Um, There's a railroad tie manufacturer, for example, in air, employed seamen. There were lumber boats all up and down the West Coast that employed seamen. They worked for lumber companies. They didn't work for transportation companies. There were uh, coal companies that employed seamen. The Ford Motor Company employed seamen. There's a host of, of employers that employed seamen. And the reason is very similar to why you have a host of companies employing truckers today, which is that unlike railroads, which require, you know, like a track, and a railroad, which is um, expensive and and infrastructure-heavy and can only be laid in certain places, all you needed to ship your own goods is a boat, just like — before —
3: keep going, sorry.
1: No, please go ahead.
3: Uh, Before 1925 — and you might have addressed this earlier, but I want to make sure I have it nailed down — before 1925, could those employees who worked — Uh, As Justice Kagan said, not in the shipping industry, but, say, lumber barges and that kind of thing, if they had a dispute, did it go to the shipping arbitration regime or did it go to court?
1: They could choose. So the, the shipping uh, arbitration regime, the, the lim- it applied to anybody who was not paid on profit share, who was on an international voyage, a coast-to-coast voyage, or a coasting voyage if they had signed ship- shipping articles before the shipping right, commission. Right, but
3: that, I think that blends into my concern earlier that the linkage was, even if you have a slightly broader cat- uh, category of seamen than they say— they were covered by the separate arbitration regime. I think is what you're saying.
1: Some were and some were not, and would depend on the length of their voyage, essentially. And didn't you also say it depended on whether they chose afterwards? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so and they. It was only if you know, even the seamen who were covered by this statute um, would only go to ch- arbitration if they chose to do so, along with the master of their boat. I, I, uh,
3: I do want to understand though. That, Justice Kavanaugh's point, who would not have been included in the regime? You said there are some seamen who wouldn't be. Who are they?
1: Uh, so anybody who was on a coasting voyage who did not sign their shipping articles in front of a shipping commissioner, so the lumber to take the lumber boat as an example, um, the lumber boat workers who had signed shipping articles before the shipping commissioner could have gone to shipping commissioner arbitration. Those who didn't could not. Anybody who wasn't on an ocean voyage, so anybody who was on a river or on a lake, those were certainly seamen. They could not have...
3: Categorically outside the arbitration provision.
1: Categorically outside because those voyages were only international coast-to-coast or coastwise. So anybody doing seamen's work in the internal parts of the United States, anybody doing seamen's work um, that was local, uh, that didn't go very far. So, for example, this court's decision in Ellis talks about dredgers as being seamen. Got it. Thank you.
6: So even if we uh, reject the transportation industry test, Uh, we would still have to distinguish transportation workers from other workers. And you talked a little bit with Justice Sotomayor about that. Are you suggesting that we, if we side with you in this case, that we take this opportunity to say more about that distinction, or do you think Saxon covers it?
1: I think Saxon covers it, and Saxon lays out a pretty clear test, which is workers that are directly involved in transporting goods across foreign or state borders. Uh, and, And I'll note, since Saxon, the lower courts are pretty much agreed about what that means. And so I think, you know, if there is some further dispute that comes up, perhaps this Court may need to weigh in in that case, but I don't think this Court needs to do
0: so here. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Thomas? Ms. Lito? Justice Sotomayor? King. Justice Gorsuch?
3: Um, the, your friends on the other side um, make a, a, a large feature about some language in, in um, Saxon, um, and I'm not sure you've quite had a chance to address it yet. But seamen constituted a subset of workers engaged in the maritime shipping industry. Put aside history. How do you deal with that as a matter of
0: precedent?
1: I think there are, are two answers to that. One is uh, and they're related. One is the argument that the court was discussing. There was just the argument that anybody who did the work of shipping would be exempt uh, and would be a seaman. And what the court was saying is, uh, not everybody who did the work of shipping was a seaman. What they were saying, it, what you know, the what people who uh, are seamen are people who do the work of shipping on a boat. So Got I don't it. think the court was answering. that.
3: That's me. one. You said you had two.
1: The second is related, which is um, to the. It's similar to the answer I was giving Justice Kagan earlier, which is what it means to be. In an industry. So, for example, you know, Jones Day, certainly in the legal services industry, I don't think the head chef at the cafeteria of Jones Day would say that she's in the legal services industry. I think she'd say she's in the food services industry. How
0: does that differ from the first point?
1: I, I think they're related. It's the same thing, essentially what the court— you Okay. All right. Thank should. you. Understood.
0: Justice Cavanaugh, Justice Barrett, Justice Jackson. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Ms. Levitt.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the court. As counsel has made clear, petitioners view the Section 1 exemption as encompassing any worker directly involved in a goods interstate journey, from the plant worker who loads goods for shipment to the store clerk who unloads them and shelves them. But in Circuit City, this Court said that the Section 1 exemption should be read narrowly and should be interpreted with reference to the adjustum canon, context, and history, all three of which demonstrate that the exemption is limited to transportation industry workers. After all, in 1925, Justice Kavanaugh is correct. Seamen and railroad employees were defined by the industry in which they work, and that commonality should carry through to the residual clause. Context and history tell you why this line makes sense. By 1925, Congress knew that labor disputes involving transportation industry workers were different. They were unique. They could cause famines in Chicago. And in response, Congress passed two and only two federal arbitration statutes, one governing railroad employees in the rail industry and one governing seamen who, under the Shipping Commissioners Act, were limited to those in the shipping industry. Petitioners can't provide a why, For the enumeration. They can't explain why you would pair railroad employees and seamen together. And they advocate a definition of seamen that is so broad it's flatly inconsistent with the notion of a transportation worker and this Court's holding in Circuit City. The result? A poor fit. And petitioners show by example. Petitioners buy flowers bread. They pay flowers for product. Then they take title. To the bread. And it is only after they take title to the bread that they then move it intrastate in order to sell it to retailers for a profit. They are under no personal obligation to move anything. They look nothing like railroad employees or seamen. I welcome the Court's questions.
2: We have uh, uh, looked at the performance of the uh, workers uh, in Saxon. And wouldn't it complicate matters now to look at the entire industry as, uh, the, uh, certainly the District Court did and, and, uh, the Second Circuit did?
7: I, I don't think so, Justice Thomas. And,
2: and don't you think, I mean, I thought we foreclosed that. We said that we won't look. The argument, part of the argument in Saxon was, well, uh, she, Saxon is in the, in the transportation industry, therefore. And as I hear you, you're saying, well, uh, uh petitioner here is not in the transportation industry, therefore. And we foreclosed that, I thought, in, in Saxon.
7: So two points, Justice Thomas. The first was that you have to read those holdings in Saxon in light of the background fact that Ms. Saxon was an airline transportation industry worker. The Court presupposed that fact, and as Justice Kavanaugh read from the oral argument, that was an accepted fact and part of the background on which the holding was made. The second point is the industry-wide holding. And in that part of the Court's opinion, the Court was rejecting Ms. Saxon's argument that it was sufficient for her to fall within the Section 1 exemption just because she was a transportation industry worker. And our argument is not that it's sufficient. We think that, that you have to do the Saxon analysis. But the first question is, is being in the transportation industry necessary? And and the answer to that should be yes, because, you know, ever since 1972 in the Second Circuit, the background rule has been that you have to be in a transportation industry. That's the Irving decision that predates Circuit City and was on the winning side of the Circuit City split. But we have cases
6: from the 1920s in which you didn't have to be in the transportation industry in order to be counted as a seaman, so how — do you square your position with that?
7: So, I, first, I think Saxon informs what it means to be a seaman. But, but, Justice Jackson, I, those cases aren't dealing with the limit here, which is you already have Circuit City, and Circuit City has already held that Ajustum, because of the Adjustum canon, there are implied limits. And one of those implied limits is it's not a limitless seaman. It's the seamen who are transportation workers. And I think that's where Petitioner's definition gets in trouble – Because petitioners freely admit that their seamen are pirates, they're enemy ship folks, they're on recreational boats. I understand,
6: but, but, but how do you square that with cases where we have actors aboard a ship being counted as seamen, for example?
7: Most of those are Jones Act cases. And well, why does that
6: matter, when Congress was using the word semen, as I'm sure it was understood at the time that statute was passed?
7: Two reasons. The first is the Jones Act has a broad remedial purpose, and this Court has repeatedly recognized in the Jones Act context that it's reaching to the outer limit of semen. The second is that there's no other federal statute that uses railroad employees and seamen together. And Circuit City says that that list has meaning. And that list means that Section 1 seamen are different from other seamen. They share a commonality with railroad employees. And this Court held in Circuit City that that commonality is transportation worker.
0: Well, but the commonality can get very complicated, as your friend on the other side said. I and mean, where did the price structure and revenue approach come from?
7: That, that was part of the Second Circuit's decision. And yeah,
0: but where did it — where did they get it?
7: I think the Court was looking to characteristics of folks in the transportation industry um, and giving a more granular approach to what are common characteristics on the facts of this case. And, again, these facts aren't disputed, so there's — No, no, but, I mean,
0: they're not — they're trying to figure out what the transportation industry is. Right. And, again, I, I think they just kind of made up — Not. I don't use that in a pejorative sense — Maybe or created uh, uh, this — Price structure and revenue approach, but it really imposes a, a difficult burden, uh, and it would seem to me a lot of different results. I mean, you'd have conflict among the uh, uh, lower courts considering how that applies. I mean, it, it, and the examples they give, I think, are pretty compelling. I mean, is is Amazon in the transportation business uh, just because it has a fleet of planes that it uses, or part of Amazon is? So, uh, d-
7: Take your uh, I three questions there so <laughs> sorry <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep track of them but the, the first the first question which is about the second circuit's analysis i think the second circuit was giving factors that were relevant to this case i think the test is broader than that and it has been broader than that because again the background rule for at, since at least 1972 in the second circuit has been you have to be in the transportation industry and it's been a line between are you hauling only your own, own stuff Or as part of your business hauling third-party goods as well? And that's a very clean line. Let's use your Amazon example. I think in Amazon, and again, I don't – I'm not Amazon's counsel, so I'm speaking as purely a consumer – um, as I understand, Amazon—they're shipping not only the, some Amazon retail products, but their regular course of business involves shipping all sorts of products that they don't manufacture. Well, I think but, they're clearly in the
0: transportation industry. Well, but sometimes they use their own planes, and sometimes they use FedEx's planes. And so, and sometimes the workers who do exactly the same thing count as in the transportation industry, but in the other t- other times they don't.
7: Well, again, I think that in the Amazon case, you're 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 in the transportation industry. And they get out for, for last-mile reasons. But to your question, which is sometimes they use FedEx, that's correct. But if, Fed, if we had used FedEx, the defendant in the suit wouldn't be Flowers Foods. It would be FedEx because the contract of employment would be between FedEx and the worker. Why would Congress do that? That was your last question. I think that's the key question. And there's a whole lot of reasons why Congress would do this. There's, this is — to us, Section 1, the exemption, is a wholesale policy judgment by Congress that transportation industry workers are different. And we know Congress is making wholesale judgments because it had put only two classes of workers in arbitration or had federal arbitration statutes, railroad employees and seamen in the shipping industry. And why would Congress do that? Because up to 1925, there have been many strikes, as petitioners point out but only strikes involving the transportation industry brought the country to a halt and caused famines in Chicago. And so Congress could reasonably say, and this is different. And today, we because the economy is different, we can think of all sorts of reasons why that policy judgment doesn't fit on the modern economy. But that doesn't make Congress's judgment in 1925 wrong. But, Miss Levitt?
4: The Shipping Commissioners Act, Ms. Bennett, says that, in fact, it did encompass seamen who were outside of the shipping industry. If I agree with her about that, do you lose? Well, I I would
7: disagree with that. And, and if I can answer that question first and then yours, Justice Barrett. Sure. So in, the Shipping Commissioners Act has two large restrictions. The first was in, and I'm, I'm citing the 1925 version of 46 USC, Section 464 and Section 465. Section 464 says it's only voyage vessels that have voyages from the East Coast in the United States to the West Coast, and from a port in the United States to a port overseas, not Canada. And then there's a second limit that you can't be earning a profit from the things that you're shipping. So you're not fit, you're not making your money because you're shipping fish and you're selling the fish. You're making the money off the transportation. Those two limits boil down to the shipping industry. And here's where I think a little bit of history of shipping helps a lot, The Panama Canal didn't open until 1914. So to get from San Francisco to Boston in 1914 was almost a nine-month journey. You don't take that journey and return with an empty ship. Those factors that are in the Shipping Commissioners Act are isolating the industry. And it makes sense because the people who need the arbitration remedy— The seamen who need the arbitration remedy are those who are going from port to port to port to port to port, going on a new vessel every time. They aren't the employees of of, of a company that's making the same journey back and forth, and they're regularly
4: employed. you just pointed out reasons in the statute that mm-hmm. limited. So you're saying this wasn't just any semen. It was semen who met these particular restrictions. Well, Section 1 doesn't have that additional language. It just says seamen. So why wouldn't Section 1 be a broader subset of the narrower subset that you're talking about?
7: Because in both New Prime and in Circuit City, this Court recognized that the rich fabric upon which the Section 1 exemption was passed was the fabric of the Shipping Commissioners Act and the Railway, the Railway Act. And both of those were limited in effect to the shipping industry workers. And so it would have been unusual at the time uh, to bring in all of these seamen who, again, petitioners can see recreational boats are in. Uh, So if you work on a yacht, you are and you never transport a good and you're just sightseeing with the you know whoever owns the yacht, you're a seaman within the Section One construct. But that's not a transportation worker. And that's not what Congress was getting at. They were getting at that narrow subset of workers who actually impact the national commerce and national security. But why
6: do those workers have to be in the industry? I mean, I can agree with you that the statute is about transportation workers, and, in fact, we've held that. So we're not talking about, I mean, maybe, maybe I would disagree with the uh, representation that you just made about people who are working on a yacht. Maybe. Maybe. But I think the line there is drawn between transportation worker and other workers. Both, you can have transportation workers in a different kind of industry. That's why I don't understand where the industry uh, limitation is coming from. That's not in the statute.
7: I, I think it's coming from — I think it is in the statute. I think it's falling out of the enumeration. And it's just
6: the, as- uh, we've said the enumeration goes to transportation worker. seamen. Railroad workers, the other, we say, is limited by that to mean transportation workers. Got it. And Where is the industry coming from?
7: So uh, two points. First, in, in Saxon, I think this Court correctly recognized that it's never given an exhaustive definition of transportation worker. So the industry is coming out of the fact that in 1925— seamen were the seamen on these merchant ships that were in the shipping industry. But what about
6: companies in, 19, in the 1920s that had their own fleets or own boats or railroad companies or uh, lumber companies that had railroad workers that, that were their own in-house?
7: They were almost always outside of the Shipping Commissioners Act because they're making these little local journeys that aren't falling within the arbitration provisions. And, and a lot's been said, of, if you indulge me for 30 seconds, a lot's been said about these lumber schooners. Petitioners actually don't have the history right on lumber schooners. Lumber schooners are a kind of boat and they were owned by syndicates. The syndicates included all people within the, the like you can imagine, the people who produced the lumber, the people who were trading in lumber, the people who converted the lumber to two by fours, and people who made paper. And they had one, and the master of the vessel. And they had one interest, which was to keep the vessel full. So to the extent Council, that
5: Council, isn't all of this an argument for us looking at um, the last-leg drivers and deciding w- whether this was foreign or interstate commerce as understood at the time? I — mean, that, That's where I see this argument. I just don't see it — I mean, by the way, as an aside, Amazon, who's an amicus on your side, doesn't agree with you — on on pages 5 to 7 in their brief. They say the focus is not on what the employee is doing as part of its duties, employer is doing, um, but what what the industry is. And it says it's what the employee is doing. Their argument is, um, on what I'm saying your argument is, we have to look more carefully and more narrowly at what foreign or interstate commerce means.
7: Well, two two points, Justice Sotomayor. The first is I doubt they liked my answer, that they were in the transportation industry, which might explain what they were doing on pages five through seven. But I do think if you disagree with us — Well, they're
5: saying they're not, but they don't say that's dispositive. What it, they're saying is what's dispositive is that their workers are not engaged in foreign or interstate commerce.
7: And I, I would agree that if — if you decide, I think the last mile cases are important, and I think you you do have to decide the last mile issue not as here, well though. as our issue. Not here, but it would be an issue for remand because we've yeah you know, we preserved the issue. I, we but, don't
5: even have to get into that whether you preserved it or not. I
7: didn't check. I, I the do. The question think, is a different question. I, when I want to get to the heart of that question, which is 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 the problem solved by last mile? And no, it's not because again, the background rule here until about 2020. Was that the transportation industry workers were out, and that's why you're not seeing these cases arise until just the past year or so. And so the problem is, you have a lot of companies who are, are like uh, um, I, I'm just going to say Acme to keep it, you know, the record clean. You have Acme Company who actually has their own drivers who cross state lines. That company doesn't see them. They're not in the shipping industries in any in any way, and they're not preserved by the last mile. And so you start to introduce a whole class of cases. I mean, every in the modern economy, every retailer, every manufacturer has a shipping department, and those shipping departments are inevitably shipping goods um, in interstate commerce. And so you be in, in light of the fact that the background rule excluded transportation industries, you're opening a whole other area that has been — I mean, honestly, if you look at Circuit City, the cases that the court affirmed in Circuit City, the Court of Appeals cases, were all assuming a transportation industry component. Ms. Levitt, do
4: we care? Let's see. We do care. Um, (laughs) I want to follow up on Justice Sotomayor's question. If you win, if we say there is an industry requirement on the last mile, if we've shifted our focus to the industry — Does that go a long way towards settling the last-mile driver question against you? Because then would we say as long as you're a worker in the industry and the industry is engaged in interstate commerce, you get swept in? Or I understand it wouldn't resolve it, but would it make your argument harder?
7: Uh, No, I I don't think so, because we're viewing the industry issue as a threshold issue. It's a necessary condition, not a sufficient one. So you'd still have the Saxon analysis. And the reason why that is important is because you're excluding a whole line of cases that heretofore have been excluded involving manufacturers. You'd still need to decide the last mile question. And I think for the good of the lower courts, it would be good to take one of those cases because that's an additional limitation, not an alternative limitation in our view. And one that would, again, I think it's important to deal with both preventing the wave of cases, and again, petitioner's not denying the fact that this is opening a whole new line of cases that, since even before the time of Circuit City, were viewed as off-limits under Section 1. Uh, it's pre- it's pre- it's preventing that waterfall and you, cascade of cases. Do
3: you think uh, before 1925, as your friend on the other side said, there were some workers who were not covered by any arbitration regime?
7: Industry workers? I mean, prior to — so you
3: well, — it's that might have loaded the. You yeah. might have just loaded the question. I think the question was: uh, seamen who don't work for uh, what we would call a maritime shipping company mm-hmm. uh, fell into this gray area where they were covered by neither arbitration regime. I think was the theory, and uh, I think that was the theory. Or at least the answer. Do you agree with that?
7: So I uh, just if I could restate the question and make yep. sure I understand do. it correctly. <laughs> is that there, there were seamen who were outside of the Shipping Commissioners Act or you know that that don't work in the shipping industry. That would be the leisure example, right? And the, the recreational boats, the folks who are who who are on on lumber schooners that are just doing coastwise voyages. So they're doing and those are the traditional manufacturers. They would be outside of the Shipping Commissioners Act. We are operating a bit, just to be candid, there aren't any cases interpreting the Shipping Commissioners Act, so you have to interpret by analogy of, you know, what was happening in the rail industries. And and the on, the rail ra- industry,
3: on the rail industry, it's crystal — well, crystal clear is a little strong, but it's clear, right, that you had to be an employee of the railroad.
7: Yeah. I mean, we would use the word crystal clear, but in, in, the, fe- in the federal arbitration's provisions governing railroad employees, you had to be an employer of the common carrier, and, and then just to take it full circle to Saxon, I mean, the cases that this Court was citing in Saxon for the idea that a cargo loader was part of the part of interstate commerce, those are all rail common carrier cases. And the holding is, if you're a baggage handler on a railroad that's in the industry providing transportation services, you're clearly in.
3: And so this, one thing I couldn't figure out is, but I think – uh, the number of workers who are going to be uh, exempt, and number of companies who are going to have to deal with, this is massive if you lose. But I mean, spell that out for me. That's uh, I'm not sh- sure how to quantify it. Really.
7: So it, it's massive. Let's let's again, these are all new cases in the past, say five years. In the past five years, you've had cases against uh, Domino's franchisees. So you're bringing in every franchise restaurant, which is why the restaurant industry group filed on our behalf. You're bringing in the medical industry. Medical industry ships like this because they need to get their products very quickly from one place to another. Um, you're bringing in basically the entire food industry because again, these point to these point-to-sale shipments like breads, things that go bad, beer. Uh, that you have to. That whole industry is now in. And the way that the modern economy works, this is how retail works. You're now bringing in every retail industry that is shipping their own. They've got you know warehouses going to brick and mortars. Um, those, but i but, uh, could, but
6: couldn't <clears throat> that be taken care of through um, other doctrines?
7: Not through last mile, which I think was the, the question. Yes, because these are these are these are all companies that are shipping over the borders. And the reason why this hasn't been a problem to date is, again, because the background rule has been that it's transportation industry. And even in Saxon, when you're talking about the seamen who are under Section 1, you're using the, uh, a subset of the maritime shipping industry. Even this court, and it's, I'm not saying it's holding or it decided anything, but I think it's saying these. this is the language that's informing the lower courts.
2: Well, that's an, uh, an important point, and I hope that uh, Ms. Bennett will take the opportunity on rebuttal to address it. But let me just ask: on the other side, it may have been straightforward for the Second Circuit to apply its test to the facts of this case. But will it be straightforward in other cases? Will it not involve some very difficult line-drawing problems?
7: <laughs> I, 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 Justice Lito, in our view, it's not. Ninety-five percent of these cases, it's clear. The FedExes, the UPS, the yellow freights, the — it's very clear who's in the shipping industry because they're in the business of shipping other people's goods. And even there are companies like Amazon who ship their own and other people's, but the usual course of their business is to include other people's goods. There — you know, most companies — I don't want to use the word most because — But there are
2: not not a lot of companies that do — in which, let's say, 60 percent of their work doesn't involve transportation, but or 70 percent doesn't involve transportation, but 30 percent does, there aren't companies that might fall into that category?
7: I, I think you could use the Saxon analysis. For You know, Saxon said, how do you determine a worker's work, which is also a fact-based question. Use it whether it's frequent. Um, and I think that's the same kind of straightforward analysis that you could apply here. Are you frequently in the business of shipping other people's goods? And it's no more difficult than the tests in Saxon, but it offers a different test, and one that's going to exclude this mass body of cases that have heretofore not,
4: not been in the federal courts. But it's part term. of what oh, — sorry. Go ahead. Uh, is part of what you're saying that the industry has — or industry generally, and in the way that business is done now has massively shifted — And maybe those words mean the same thing. Maybe they mean what Ms. Bennett says they do. But because of the way that industry and shipping has changed, just kind of as an anachronism, it doesn't really make sense. And then wouldn't it be for Congress to fix it? I I think
7: Congress already fixed it. And because when it enacted Section 1, there is a residual clause. Congress was anticipating that there were going to be other industries and that, that would have the same kind of shipping element to them. And the airline industry, for example, was the very next stop. And they also have an arbitration provision, which, by the way, to get to your question that you asked, petitioners' counsel, yes, this is still relevant because we still have massive arbitration regimes governing the rail industry and the air industry. And if you had the FAA coming in, and uh, there'd be a question over which one is preeminent, and I could see petition a whole new line of cases where people, where employers are saying, "No, we're outside of that federal regime." We have a private contract. We enforce it under the FAA. So there is interference that could be done under the modern, um, modern statutes. But I think to get to your point, it's not an anachronism. I think what has changed is that in 1925, um, industries, there, there weren't big long haul. There really wasn't an airline industry, and there really wasn't a, 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 ra- a over-the-road trucking industry. That didn't really come until the 1950s. And the way people shipped goods um, is by rail. And and if you are shipping or you're shipping long distances in the shipping industry and vessels. And so the Section 1 was really encompassing the entirety of the transportation industry while anticipating that the industry was also evolving and that Congress might want to get involved there too. And if I could just make one last point, I I think part of the issue here is too is there's not been any industry component. And now Saxon, if you combine, if you hold that there's no industry requirement and you combine it with the holding in Saxon, it's not only that you bring in all of these you know manufacturers who've never been within the scope of one, but you also bring in people who load goods. And then the next question is going to be, well what about the people who package them? What about the people who sort them? But what said, about the people who but, 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 but
6: I guess what I don't understand is how your theory is consistent with what you say Congress's goals are with respect to Section One. I mean, throughout your brief you say that Section 1 was intended to capture workers, quote, critical to commerce and national security. So fine, we now have all these companies that uh, have components of transportation within them, but their workers are doing things, as you say, uh, involving goods that are crossing state lines and that are presumably critical to commerce and national security. So why would the line be between big companies with in-house transportation uh, arms versus those that use FedEx?
7: I'm glad you asked that question, and it's the word presumably, because if something in most labor disputes, if you have a labor dispute between the employer and their employees, the employer is best situated to deal with that dispute. The time when that's not true is when you have transportation industry workers, because there are third-party effects that cascade. For the customers who have their their goods on on the rails, but you're to, you're,
6: you're saying that that's what Congress. I, I thought they were just trying not to have the disruption.
7: That Congress was saying there are areas of the economy that are so important that we're doing our own federal arbitration scheme. We're not leaving it to the private parties to decide how they're going to dis- resolve these remedies because they, Im- they involve third-party concerns. And that was the history. In 1925, the railroad labor industry, there were all, again, all sorts of industry disputes, but it was only the rail industry dispute that brought Chicago to the point of famine. And that's when Congress had to intervene. Now, and I said,
6: just thought that was because of the nature of the goods and the fact that they were crossing – state lines, and they were sort of international. And that's the same with Amazon and Walmart and U.S. Foods and companies that have internal transportation arms today.
7: So today, let's take flowers. If if flowers can't ship its bread, that, is, that problem is best addressed between flowers and, and its employees. But it doesn't mean that the nation runs out of bread. It means that people are going to have to buy other bread for a little bit of time. And that's true whenever you're talking about a manufacturer. If it's a single manufacturer that has a problem, there are other manufacturers who aren't implicated. Where you start to get the whole of the national economy involved is when you're talking about the, the international and interstate shipping of goods in and that, and, and that industry. And again, we may come up with a lot of examples today where that doesn't make sense, but in 1925, that was the lesson that Congress had learned, And Congress responded by enacting arbitration provisions for only two members of the economy, two classes of workers, and they were both in the transportation industry.
5: I just want to make sure that the background principles, I got them in my head right. Mm -hmm. These contracts that these employees have with the employers could be enforceable in state court. If they require arbitration in state court, Um, If you file a suit in state court or they file a suit in state court, those arbitration agreements have to be honored,
7: correct? That's the position we took in the lower court, but there's a circuit court split on that question as well. And I I don't think that's a good answer because in a lot of states you couldn't arbitrate this at all either. So you don't get — Because of state law is not permitting? Because of the state law. Got it. You have no other questions?
0: Thank you, Counsel. Justice Thomas? Sort of —
3: one question, is the, the phrase common carrier helpful or not helpful here?
7: I don't think it's helpful because in the shipping industry, I mean, common carriers would mean ferries. And there's a whole component of the of the, of the shipping industry that aren't common carriers that are really at the heart of it.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Justice Barrett, Justice Jackson. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Ms. Bennett, rebuttal.
1: Sure. So I just want to make – thank you, Your Honor. I just want to make three quick points. Um, The first is on the text. I didn't hear a single argument that any word in this text means somebody works for – An employer that sells transportation. Again, even if we accept Flowers' understanding of what the word seamen meant in 1925 and put aside fishermen and any of the other people they're worried about, even if we accept it's just people who are on vessels transporting goods for commerce, that has nothing to do with who employed those people. And that's the way every statute governing seamen worked in 1925. There were a bunch of statutes that have a bunch of different limitations, but all of them were very explicit about what they were and not a single one was employer based. And that's for the second, to take the second reason, which is Flower says, don't worry so much about the text. What we really want to think about is policy and purpose. And even if this court were inclined to do so, even if this court were inclined to define what Congress meant 100 years ago, we have some evidence about that. And, and, and Flower says, look at the strikes that disrupted the national economy. In the maritime, in shipping and maritime shipping, those strikes were led by people on lumber boats. And I'll note we cite uh, in our brief um, the evidence that those people were on boats were employed by the lumber companies and on boats owned by those companies. But if Congress was really trying to get at people who could disrupt commerce, you know, the way strikes worked in 1925 is they weren't employer-based. Everybody who did the same job in the same location struck together. And that's why they were so destructive. And so if Congress was trying to get at that, they would not have included an employer-based limitation. I think that's why we don't see one in the statute. Um, to Justice Alito's point about narrowness, I think you asked that I addressed that in rebuttal. Uh, two points on that. One is it's not true that the background rule in the circuits has been this employer-based industry requirement. Um, the Seventh Circuit decision in Keenstray, I believe, was a concrete company. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has decisions on Amazon. The First Circuit does. You know, I'm not aware of this requirement being true in any circuit in, until, really, the Second Circuit made this decision and the Eleventh Circuit had some decisions. Um, but even in the second circuit when the second circuit articulated said that workers needed to be in the transportation industry what it said was a basketball player is not in the transportation industry it wasn't saying anything about who the employer was and and as the dissent in this case said in the second circuit the well-established rule has been forever that if the residual clause covers anyone it's truck drivers and given that long-standing principle I still haven't seen a single case where you have you know, people delivery drivers or pest control workers or any of the people they're, they're worried about, uh, actually any court saying that they're exempt, despite the rule being ordinarily, no court has really looked at whether this kind of employer-based test. Um, and And... And the other thing is, you know, the Flowers makes a big deal of railroad employees. There are almost no railroad employees today. Almost all of those jobs are truckers now. And so we're not making the exemption broader. We're just taking the people who would have been railroad employees, and now they're truck drivers. And it so happens that trucking works just like maritime shipping, which is that some companies use companies like FedEx, And some companies do what Flowers did, which is essentially bring a trucking company in-house themselves. There's no reason that those workers should be treated any differently. And the last point I want to make is just on administrability. Flowers hasn't explained how its test or how the Second Circuit's test would apply in this very case. And that's in two ways. One, there's no dispute here that Flowers sells transportation the retailers that Flowers sells to are not just buying bread, they're buying the bread showing up at their retail stores. It's not clear to me why for that reason alone that Flowers doesn't satisfy its own test. And the second point is, Flowers actually has quite a complicated corporate structure uh, and the drivers here aren't contracting with Flowers, they're contracting with a subsidiary of Flowers that only handles transportation for other subsidiaries that make baked goods. So that subsidiary is only transporting other people's goods. And Flowers doesn't explain why that, too, wouldn't satisfy its test. And what that shows is that its test, the employer-based industry test, is going to be really difficult to apply. And it's going to be difficult to apply even in cases that Flowers says, like this one, should be straightforward. They're not. And, again, this would have been a problem in 1925, just as it is today. You know, there were lumber companies that owned railroads that may or may not have shipped entirely the lumber company's goods. And it's not clear — you know, Congress would have known in 1925 that that would have been difficult to apply, and there's no reason it would have included that requirement in the statute here. So, again, we ask that this Court reject Flowers' request to add this requirement that both has no basis in the text and would just make the statute harder to apply. Thank you.
0: Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.